Chapter 17 of Italian Life and Legends by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 17 Caterina Sforza. Thrice wedded, thrice widowed. An Italian Chatelaine. Part 1. There is a state prison in Florence called the Murate, which, but a few years ago, was the old Murate convent, inhabited exclusively by noble ladies who, in weary disgust or penitential sorrow, had retired from the storms or allurements of the world. In that convent died Caterina Sforza, one of the most lion-hearted, indomitable, yet fascinating and beautiful woman of her age, and impressive type of the Italian Chatelaine of the 15th century. Caterina's life was replete with those startling incidents and sudden changes which give to history the high coloring of a sensational romance. She was the illegitimate daughter of Galeazio Maria Sforza, Duke of Milan, and was born in 1462. When she had reached her eighth year, the duke caused her to be legitimized, and his gentle second wife, the Duchess Bona, soon after her marriage, affectionately received the precocious child into her princely home, and did not cease tenderly to watch over the little stranger when she herself became a mother, nor to give her the precedence due to the eldest daughter of the noble house of Sforza. It is related of the Duke Galeazzo, whose court was renowned for its luxury, vice, and splendor, that having exhausted all amusements in turn, he found his highest enjoyment in witnessing tortures, executions, and cruel mutilations. The sight of death and human decay excited in him such ferocious delight that he even frequented charnel houses and caused graves to be torn open that he might gaze upon corruption when caterina was eleven years of age she was publicly betrothed by proxy to geralmo riario a nephew of pope sixtus the fourth the great galeazzo the superb duke lived but thirty-two years to blot the annals of history with the record of his unsurpassed abominations in december of the year fourteen seventy six three youths one of whom came to avenge a sister whom the duke had brought to shame waited for their sovereign at the door of the cathedral of st stephen's and although the duke was surrounded by his guards stabbed him mortally in may 1477, Caterina was married by proxy at Milan to Geralmo Riario, whom she had not yet seen. The recent death of the duke forbade all festivities, and the young bride departed immediately to join her bridegroom at Rome. She had smiled upon only fifteen birthdays when, accompanied by her bridegroom, and mounted upon a richly caparisoned steed, she rode through the Porta della Popo into Rome. 
She was eminently beautiful and superbly attired, and as she passed through the piazza of the famed old Pantheon, in the midst of a brilliant cavalcade, to the magnificent residence of her husband, on the banks of the Tiber, all Rome grew wild with enthusiastic admiration. The Palazzo Corsini now rears its noble walls where the Riario Palace then stood. Caterina's influence soon became all-powerful with Pope Sixtus and his court. It is said the princes of Italy, who had any favors to ask of the Apostolic See, had only to secure her intercession to obtain their wishes. Shortly after his bridal, Geralmo, with much ceremony, was made a citizen of Rome. Later, he received from the Pope investiture of the city and county of Forli, one of the most important towns of Romagna, and near the principality of Imola, brought to him by his wife. He was also made generalissimo of the papal forces. On Easter Day, the 26th of April, 1478, Lorenzo de' Medici, called the Magnificent, and his brother, Giuliano, were stabbed by assassins in the cathedral at Florence. Giuliano mortally, Lorenzo not fatally. Florentine historians declare that Girolamo was one of the conspirators who planned this infamous deed, and one writer adds, these things were ordered by Pope Sixtus to take away the dominion of Florence from Lorenzo de' Medici and give it to Count Girolamo. It was well known that Girolamo, who had the highest appreciation of Caterina's superior intellect, consulted her upon all state affairs, but that he made her the confidant of this murderous project seems improbable. She was but sixteen and about to become a mother. There is no proof that she had any knowledge of her husband's crime. The first infant to whom she gave birth was a daughter, Bianca, whose sex occasioned her parents severe and undisguised disappointment. A disappointment, however, which was not repeated, for Caterina never bore another daughter, though she gave birth to numerous sons. To no woman could have been more appropriately applied Shakespeare's adjuration, bring forth men-children only, for thy undaunted metal should compose nothing but males. The next year a son, Ottaviano, was born, and a second son the succeeding year. After passing four years in Rome, Girolamo and his young wife, for the first time, visited their dominions of Forli and Imolia. The journey occupied eight days, and the cortege of the young couple resembled a triumphal procession, terminating with a train of horses in rich housing, mules bearing heavy loads or drawing well-filled carts, and each mule-covered load with an embroidered cloth showing the arms of Rover and Sforza, and bound with silken cords, and each cart similarly protected. The citizens of Forlay hailed with exuberant demonstration of joy the entrance of all this wealth into their city. Young men and maidens dressed in white and bearing olive branches in their hands, preceded by the clergy and magistrates in their robes of office, went out to welcome their sovereigns. The Count and Countess descended from their horses and received them standing. Everyone was charmed by the beauty of Caterina, 
who wore her most gorgeous gala dress and her costliest pearls and diamonds. The homage of the city was offered in a very choice oration, and in replying the Count was pleased to remit the corn duties, which gave great satisfaction. For three days there were public rejoicings throughout Forley. In the principal square a tournament was held, in which the Roman princes joined. A vast wooden castle was constructed in the middle of the piazza, and besieged and defended by two parties of the townspeople. A reward was given to the first of the besieging party who entered. Unfortunately, it cost the youth who accomplished the feat an eye. Then there was a grand ball, at which the Count and Countess led the dance. And, says the historian, there were, of course, triumphal arches, allegorical paintings, cunning carpentry, devices moving by unseen means, eating, drinking, and speechifying, in prose and verse, to a wonderful extent. And charming it was to see the Lady Countess and all her damsels come forth in different magnificent dresses every day for a whole week, and the great buffets, ten feet high, in the banqueting hall of the palace, loaded every day with a fresh service of silver and gold. Far different was the scene that palace was to witness when a few years had swept on. The youthful couple, after they had sojourned in Forley nearly a month, visited Imola, where the festive welcome was repeated in a more moderate manner. The Count occupied himself in the improvement of both cities. Schools were established, palaces enlarged, public squares adorned, streets paved, and an academy of fine arts instituted. The first visit of the Count and Caterina to Imola was but short. After a sojourn of three weeks, they left for Venice, to carry out certain ambitious views of the Pope. It is expressly stated that Caterina accompanied her husband because he so thoroughly relied upon her counsel and judgment. He was not, however, successful in his mission, though Venice received the noble guests with unstinted pomp and multiple festivities in their honor. Shortly after the return of the Count and Countess to Imola, they received news from Tolentino, the trusty governor of Forli, of a conspiracy which had for its object the restoration of the dynasty of the Cordelafi, the ancient masters of Forli, from whom it had been unrighteously wrested by the Pope. The conspirators had agreed to assassinate Girolamo on his journey from Imola to Forli. The Count and Countess hastened to Forli on hearing these tidings, for the danger was over and after a brief stay there, returned to Rome. On the tenth day following their departure, the four corpses of the conspirators were seen dangling from the windows of the Palazzo Publico. Girolamo was now called upon to head the papal troops and to give battle to the Neapolitans near Velletri. In company with Robert Malesta, who commanded the Venetians, he won a great victory and marched in triumph back to Rome and presented the banners taken in battle to his exulting countess. Robert Malatesta died of fever soon after the conquest he had gained, and his death was attributed to poison administered by Girolamo out of military jealousy. Rome had begun to be the scene of great distress and discontent, 
there was a scarcity of grain of wine and provisions and the deadly feud between the implacable colonna and the furious orsini kept the eternal city in a constant state of anarchy the pope and gerlamo warmly espoused the cause of the orsini in march fourteen eighty four all of the orsini headed by gerlamo armed themselves and attacked one of the palaces of the colonna a fearful tumult was the sequence the houses not only of the colonna but of many private citizens were sacked and all manner of atrocities committed in the midst of these disturbances pope sixtus died on the twelfth of august fourteen eighty four and great was the change for caterina and gerlamo whom rome now hated caterina was alone for gerlamo was driving the colonna out of the fortresses in the neighbourhood of the city she was a woman of great energy and prompt in her decisions she saw her danger and immediately took possession of the castle of sant'angelo in the name of her husband as the commander of the forces and during the first outburst of anarchy that followed the pontiff's death she and her children were safe girolamo returned to rome to find his palace utterly devastated even the marble doorways and window-cases were wrenched off and carried away and the gardens and greenhouses torn and trampled into ruins girolamo deemed it wise to leave rome with his wife and children they arrived at forle on the fourth of september how different had been their entrance to that city only a few short years before where now was the festive welcome where now was the olive branches and rejoicings the ball and tournament they were met in silence during the next four years evil auguries multiplied girolamo needed money and reimposed the taxes he had taken off this and his other well-known misdeeds daily increased his unpopularity and rendered his positions perilous caterina became the mother of three more sons during those four years an event of great importance marked this fourth year tolentino the faithful governor of forli once warned girolamo of conspiracy against him had died and one melcor sogagento of savona a ferocious and worthless man had been appointed castellano of the ravaldino the magnificent fortress built at forli by girolamo quodronci the seneschal of the palace who had formed an intimacy with Solgenescio, managed one night to introduce several bravos in the disguise of servants into the fort kills Solgenescio, and became master of the fort it is supposed the coronacci had been won over by the ordelafi and the fortress and the city were lost to the count and countess when a messenger reached imola with these terrible tidings the count was too ill to travel and caterina was daily expecting her fifth confinement yet prompt and undismayed as ever she mounted her horse and by midnight was before the gate of the ravaldino calling upon the condracci to account for his conduct the seneschal appeared upon the battlements and entreated the lady to seek repose and return in the morning and breakfast at the fort as he could say no more that night caterina had no alternative but to accept the invitation and withdraw 
The next morning she reappeared before the walls, with attendants bearing provisions for an excellent breakfast. She was told that no one but herself and one servant to carry the breakfast would be admitted. The brave Caterina reflected a few moments. If the man had been brought over by the Ordelaffi, if she trusted herself within those walls, her fate was sealed. But what could she accomplish if she did not run the risk? Her counsellors strongly advised her to refuse to enter. But she boldly passed in with the groom who bore the provisions. After a brief stay, she came forth and sent for Tommaso Feo, one of her most highly esteemed friends, and returned into the fortress with him. Condornacchi gave over the command into his hands. Feo was left Castellano, and Caterina, with Condornacchi, proceeded to Palazzo Publico, where a great crowd had assembled. The countess addressed the citizens in these words, Know, my men of Forli, that Radovino was lost to me and to the city, by the means of this Innocenzo Condoracci here, but I have recovered it, and have left it in right trusty hands. The seneschal confessed himself a traitor, by remarking that it was true enough. What persuasions Caterina employed to induce him to yield up the fortress are not recorded, but it was saved by her voice only. On leaving the Palazzo Publico, the Countess and Condracchi mounted their horses and rode to Imola. The next morning, Caterina gave birth to a son. Girolamo soon recovered and returned with Caterina to Forli. Shortly after his arrival one evening, at his usual hour of receiving guests, he was leaning out of a window of his palace when he was suddenly stabbed by one of the Orsi family. At this time, Caterina was twenty-six years of age and had six children. Part 2 The news of her husband's murder was carried to Caterina by an affrighted servant. In spite of the horror and consternation of the moment, Caterina, as usual, did not lose her presence of mind. She sent the man in all haste to tell Feo, the governor of the fort, whom she had installed in summary manner we have described, to send couriers to her brother, the Duke of Milan, and to the Lord of Bologna. Then she barricaded herself in her chamber, with her women, her children, and her young sister Stella. But the assassin of Giralmo, with half a dozen ruffians, attacked the door, broke through the barricade, and led the countess and her children captive through the crowded streets to the palace of the Orsi who had ever been her bitterest foes, and were now her husband's murderers. The body of the hated tyrant had been thrown from the window into the piazza, and the mob tore off the clothing and dragged the corpse naked through the streets until some pitying friars got possession of the mangled remains and carried them into the sacristy of their church. Cardinal Savelli, who had leagued with the conspirators, visited Caterina and suggested that she and her family would be safer in a small but strong building over St. Peter's Gateway. Caterina unhesitatingly agreed to the change, preferring any prison to the palace of her husband's destroyer. That night, the 15th of April, a troop of soldiers bearing torches marched the beautiful and haughty countess, her mother, her sister Stella, 
her six children, two nurses, and a natural son of her husband, through the streets to her new prison, and here they were all confined together in an exceedingly small room. It is worthy of note that Caterina, herself an illegitimate child, who had been tenderly nurtured by her father's wife, had been mindful to repay the debt by her care of her husband's illegitimate offspring. On the day following Caterina's removal to prison, Cardinal Savelli and the conspirators ordered Feo, the governor of Ravaldino, to deliver up the fortress. Feo, of course, refused. Then Caterina was conducted to the foot of the walls and compelled to order the Castellano to yield the fort, that he might thus save her life. The governor, looking down upon her from the ramparts, and thoroughly comprehending from his knowledge of her character what her real wishes must be, remained firm in his refusal. Caterina was led back to the prison, and that night the faithful servant, who had brought her the news of her husband's death, and had carried her message to the governor of the fortress, secretly gained admission to her. She bade him tell Feo to hold out hope of yielding the fortress, when the demand was made again, but to stipulate that she should first enter alone, that they might converse freely. This same trusty servant, acting on Caterina's suggestion, also saw the cardinal, and dexterously hinted that the surest mode of inducing Feo to yield was to allow him to have a private interview with the countess. The next day, Caterina, as she had anticipated, was again taken to the fortress, and the cardinal himself proposed to Feo that she should be allowed to enter, asking if he would obey her orders if he found that she was not acting upon compulsion. Feo cautiously replied that, after conversing with his mistress, he would do whatever seemed to him his duty. Caterina was allowed to enter unattended, with the understanding that she was to come forth in three hours. During those hours, a noisy and impatient multitude waited in front of the ramparts. The great bell of the piazza told that the three hours had expired. The murmuring voices sank to silence. All was hushed expectation, when, in obedience to the summons of a trumpet, Feo appeared upon the battlements. With the utmost sang-froid, he informed the eager crowd that his lady was much fatigued, that as soon as she entered the fort he had compelled her to seek repose, that she was now asleep, and he did not choose to disturb her, that when she awoke he did not intend to permit her to go forth, as he judged that she was safer in the fortress. Having spoken these words, he withdrew. The crowd was furious. The cardinal saw that he had been duped. The Orsi rushed to the prison, seized Caterina's children, hurried them to the walls of the fortress, summoned the Castellano, and bade him tell his mistress that their lives depended upon her keeping her promise. Feo replied in the most imperturbable manner that he would carry no such message, and he warned the citizens of Forley to reflect upon the inevitable consequences to themselves if they suffered those children, the nephews of the Duke of Milan, and protected by the Lord of Bologna, to receive the slightest injury. The enraged and baffled Orsi, the cardinal, and the citizens knew too well how much reason there was in this menace, 
and the children were carried back to their prison unharmed. But the father of the Orsi, a veteran of 85 years, who had been engaged in seven insurrections, severely rebuked his son for sparing the children, and warned them that they had committed a fatal error in allowing Katerina to enter an impregnable fortress. By his advice, they at once dispatched messengers to Rome to lay the obedience of the city at the feet of the pontiff, and to urge him to send troops and munitions for the defense. Meantime, on the 17th, the fort was attacked and Pheo, in return, bombarded the city. On the 18th, a herald from the Lord of Bologna arrived in Forley, and made proclamation that the city would be entirely destroyed if any harm was done to the children of the Count, and demanded that Caterina should be set at liberty, and her eldest son, Octaviano, proclaimed the Count of Forley. Cardinal Savelli gave answer to the herald, that the countess was already at liberty and that her children were safe but that octaviano could not be proclaimed count of forley as an embassy had been sent to rome to lay the fealty of the city at the feet of the pope on the twentieth came letters from the duke of milan reproving the cardinal savelli and one ordering the citizens to send away the cardinal and return their allegiance or abide the consequences of a refusal the next day two heralds one from the duke of milan and one from the lord of bologna rode into the great square of forley and demanded the children of the count Cicca the orsi who slew their father insolently replied that the children had already been put to death and that forley feared neither the duke of milan nor the lord of bologna as the Pope's troops would be within the gates before the Milanese could reach the city. Pope Innocent VIII, however, had no intention of taking part in the fray. Cardinal Savelli forged a letter from the Pope, promising speedily to send troops. Its authenticity was generally doubted. Savelli continued to attack the citadel with cannon, and Feo continued to batter the city from his ramparts, until on the 29th, the armies of the Duke of Milan and the Bolognese were before the walls of Forley. At this crisis, papers signed by Caterina were scattered about the streets soon after dark, entreating her loyal subjects to put to death the conspirators and promising rewards to every man whose dagger was thus employed. The Orsi tried to obtain by stratagem possession of Caterina's children, but failed and fled from the city on the 30th of April. If Caterina had acted in accordance with the custom of those days, she would have given Forley up to be sacked by the soldiers, who had come to her rescue, but she saved her subjects from this chastisement, and announced to them that they were spared for the sake of the women of Forley, though the men had not deserved mercy at her hands. The magistrates went in procession to Caterina in the fortress, and delivered to her the key of the city. She made a triumphal entrance on horseback between the generals of the forces sent to support her. It is easy to conceive the affecting meeting between Caterina and her children. Octaviano, nine years of age, was proclaimed count and his mother made regent, and the murdered Girolamo was buried with great pomp at Imola. Caterina's sister Stella, who was betrothed to one Andrea Ricci, 
had some time before this found means to leave the gatehouse prison and hasten to his bedside for he was lying ill of the wounds he had received in the general fight that had occurred immediately after girolamo was murdered she was hastily united to her wounded lover and then permitted to depart with her mother to cesna clemency was not esteemed a virtue in those days and katerina was far more merciful than the code of her age justified only a few who had taken part in the conspiracy were executed the man who threw the count's body out of the window and the veteran orsi whose great age caused him to be left behind when his children fled his chastisement was terrible before he was executed he was brought forth his long silver locks flowing on his shoulder his hands bound behind his back a halter about his neck and conducted by the hangman through the streets and placed in front of his ancestral home which was raised to the ground before his eyes having witnessed that sight far more terrible to him than death itself the old patrician was led by the halter back to the piazza and bound upon a stout plank which was attached to the tail of a powerful horse the feet of the prisoner were the nearest to the horse the head passing beyond the length of the board fell back upon the stones in this manner he was dragged twice around the piazza and before he was quite dead his side was open and his heart torn out and rent to pieces before the people katerina was a young and exceedingly beautiful widow and the aspirants to her hand were not few she was a woman to choose according to the dictates of her heart but her maternal instincts were too strong for her to imperil the interest of her children Theo, the faithful governor of the citadel had a brother not yet twenty years of age a remarkably handsome youth who is described as well skilled in all manly and noble exercises Theo had married a relative of the countess and after this union the brothers were freely admitted into the society of the countess that katerina soon became enamoured of this youth and captivating giacomo Theo, there can be no doubt and she conceived the idea of giving him his brother's place as governor of ravaldino but how was this to be accomplished she could hardly dismiss tommaso feo who had obeyed her orders so faithfully and to whose allegiance she owed perhaps her life it is even suggested by historian that as it is a good castellano's duty to hold his castle at all hazards it would not have been an easy matter to displace Tommaso Feo by ordering him to give up his command. Caterina, as we have seen, had an abundance of woman's wit at her command, to effect any object upon which she had set her heart. She gave a splendid fete in her gardens outside of the city, and invited her castellano. Throughout the day she leaned upon his arm, and toward evening requested him to escort her through the little city to her palace, thus taking him captive, while he was unsuspicious and only flattered by the distinction. Once within the palace walls, he was politely desired to yield up his sword and inform that he was a prisoner. He saw at once that he had been caught in a trap and made no resistance giacomo was then summoned and the countess informed him that although she had the highest confidence in his brother she had found it desirable for tommaso to visit his native savona 
and that Giacomo was to fill his vacant post and become governor of the fort. There is reason to suppose that, at this time, Giacomo had for some months been married to the countess. Although the union was perfectly legal, it was kept secret because Caterina would cease to be the guardian of her children if it could be proved that she had contracted a second marriage. A few months after the new governor was installed, Caterina gave birth to a son who was named Giacomo. Part 3 Caterina delighted in showering favors upon her young husband. She obtained for him, from the Duke of Milan, an order of chivalry. All the customary insignia were sent by heralds from that sumptuous court. Great were the festive rejoicings, and the devoted wife took care that Giacomo should be invested with the cloak and spurs by the noblest knights of the highest families in Forley. Her marriage did not render her a less exemplary mother. She still personally superintended the education of her children and took untiring pains to promote their welfare. Pope Innocent VIII died, and Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia succeeded him as Pope Alexander VI. History testifies that the life of this pontiff was a series of the most detestable and open crimes. A strong friendship had existed between Cardinal Borgia and Caterina's first husband, and when the cardinal was elected to the papal throne, she thought it politic to dispatch two envoys in behalf of Forley and two in behalf of Imola to compliment the pope on his election and to offer homage of both cities. A few years later, in the summer of 1494, Charles the Seventh of France laid claim to the sovereignty of Naples and marched into Italy. Forley was in a dangerous position between the Neapolitan troops at Cessna and the French troops at Bologna, and Caterina was forced to side with one party or the other. After more than usual hesitation, for the promptness of decision was her especial characteristic, she declared herself the ally of the King of Naples on the condition that Rome and Naples agreed to defend her states and that her son, Octaviano, now seventeen years old, received the rank of general in the allied army with a large stipend. The French, however, met with unexpected successes. Forley was not protected as stipulated, and Caterina deliberately changed sides and made friends with the victors. During this period, the young Giacomo Feo had acted as governor-general of Caterina's states, and she finally obtained for him from the king of France the rank and title of general. It is recorded that Giacomo was highly elated by this distinction, but alas, his promotion proved a fatal boon. It awakened the jealousy of the citizens of Imola and Forley, and seven of them took a vow that they would kill the pampered favorite. On the 27th of August, 1495, Giacomo went hunting with Caterina and her sons. When the party returned in the evening, Caterina and some of the children were in a carriage, behind which came Theo on horseback. The seven conspirators had grouped themselves just within the city walls, for they had sworn to fulfill their oaths that day. After Caterina and her sons had passed, they suddenly rushed upon the newly made general. A pike pierced his body. He uttered but one cry and fell dead. 
Katerina, affrighted by the shrieks of some of her retainers, looked back and saw her husband slain and her attendants flying in all directions. She and her sons hastily mounted horses taken from the grooms and galloped to the fortress. At the age of thirty-three, the heroic Chatelaine was for the second time a widow and again the widow of a murdered husband. There was a strong manifestation of popular indignation in Forley against the assassins. That night they were hunted through the town and the next morning carried to the piazza, where some were quartered alive, some dragged by horses through the streets. In those days, in Italy, the whole male portion of a family, of a political conspirator, was included in his condemnation, but the vengeance of Caterina was not limited to sex. Even the women, children, and babes of the guilty men were brutally slaughtered at her command. Not one babe was spared. She had never before invented such a degree of savage, pitiless cruelty, though its exercise was entirely in accordance with the creed of her time. Between forty and fifty persons were put to death to avenge the murder of Giacomo, and while the bodies of the criminals were hanging from the windows of the Palazzo Publico, Fio was buried with greater pomp than his murdered predecessor, Girolamo. Caterina's temperament was too elastic and her mind too vigorous for even grief to render it inactive. She found in an incessant occupation a balm for her sorrow. During the first two years of her widowhood, she sought distraction by tearing down the palace at Forley, to which such odious associations were attached, and building one more magnificent near the fortress Ravaldino. She purchased a large tract of land adjoining the new palace, and cultivated orchards, and dairy pastures, and beautiful gardens, and pleasure grounds, and hunting grounds, until the only fitting name for the rural Elysium with which she had encompassed herself was pronounced to be the Paradise. In the third year of her widowhood, Katerina formed a third alliance, from motives of policy and ambition, it is supposed, rather than of affection. Again she chose a husband younger than herself. She was then thirty-five, and her third bridegroom, Giovanni de' Medici, ambassador from the Republic of Florence to Forley, the great-grandson of that Giovanni, who was the founder of the Medician greatness, was but thirty. Caterina's third husband, though he fought bravely under Charles the Eighth of France, was a wise statesman, and holds no conspicuous place in history. Her nuptials were again kept secret, for the same reason which they had before rendered concealment imperative. The offspring of this union was the only one of Caterina's children who became renowned. The son to whom she gave birth in the first year of this marriage became the celebrated Giovanni del Bande Nere, who was looked upon as the greatest captain of his day, and from whom descended the long line of Tuscan grand dukes of the Medician race. He was Caterina's eighth child and seventh son. Caterina's third husband was in delicate health at the time of their union, and he died six months after the birth of his son, in the second year of his marriage. Pope Alexander, in spite of the homage paid to him by Caterina, when he was called to the papal throne, manifested unfriendly intentions. This unscrupulous Borgia had sons, 
whom he did not even pretend, according to the customs of the popes, were his nephews. To enrich these sons was his first care, and under various pretexts he declared the sundry little potentates of Romagna deposed from their sovereignties, and Caterina among them. But with her unwanted bravery she defied the Pope himself, and determined to preserve her son's scepter for him as long as the walls of the city and fortress would hold together. Louis the Twelfth, who succeeded Charles the Eighth, entered into a league with Pope Alexander and undertook to seize the Duchy of Milan, while Cesare Borgia, the Pope's eldest son, took possession of Imola and Forli, the other principalities of Romagna. Borgia appeared with his army before the walls of Imola. The city was quickly forced to surrender, but not so the Castellano of the fortress, who made answer that he would only yield when the fort was in ruins. Caterina and her son, Ottaviano were preparing to defend Forli. She personally superintended the repairing of the fortifications, and Ottaviano labored with his own hands. But the citizens of Forli showed little inclination to resist the Borgia, and Caterina retired into the citadel with her personal adherents, first sending Ottaviano to Tuscany to secure his personal safety. When she found all her efforts to rouse the city in vain, the resolute Chatelaine opened the guns of her fortress upon Forley as punishment for their desertion of her vassals. On the 19th of December, 1499, Cesare Borcia marched into Forley. T.A. Trollope says of this triumphal entry, the troops and their officers, having filed into the city before him, the great man, most wicked, base, and incapable of any great or noble thought, of all men there, the great man most reverenced admired obeyed of all men there advanced stately in full armor on a white horse with a heraldically embroidered silk tunic over his armor a tall white plume nodding above his helmet and in his hand a long green lance the point of which rested on the toe of his boot but a sudden storm dispersed the procession and the soldiers rushed about the city finding lodgings wherever they chose, turning the council hall into a tavern, making themselves masters alike of the public palace and the private residences, and to all intents and purposes sacking the city, into which they had been admitted as friends. Thus the citizens were most unexpectedly and doubly chastised for not rallying around their liege lady. Borgia, after having twice parlayed with Caterina, attacked the fortress towards the end of December. For a week she defended herself ably. Then a truce of a few days was agreed upon, and the attack was renewed on the 10th of January. At midday on the 12th, a breach was nearly practicable, and later on the same day a fire broke out in the fort, which paralyzed the garrison, and the principal part of the fortifications fell into the hands of the enemy but the undaunted Caterina retired into the principal tower and held her ground. A large number of the enemy had penetrated into another tower, which served as a magazine, and there met a terrible fate, for it was fired by Caterina's people, though apparently not by her order. Borgia again demanded parley, and Caterina appeared at the window of her tower. But while she was standing there, Reiterating her refusal to yield, a French soldier, 
who had found some means of access to the tower, came behind her and made her prisoner in the name of the general. That night, Borgia and the French general visited the haughty lady in her citadel, and it is recorded that during the interview, sounds of falling masonry and exploding mines, the shouts of pursuers, and the cries of the conquered as they fell ever and anon, came through the thick walls and gave clear evidence of the work of destruction which was in progress. Towards the close of January, Borgia returned to Rome with his noble captain. Caterina, arrayed in a black satin dress, made the journey on horseback, riding between Borgia and a French general. Once more she entered Rome, through that Porta della Polpo, which she had first passed in triumphal procession, clothed in bridal robes, a joyous and beautiful bride of sixteen, welcomed by the whole city. She now rode, conquered and despoiled, robed in black, thrice wedded and thrice widowed, with a victorious foe on either side of her rudely uncomparisoned steed. She was led to the Vatican, which in those unforgotten days had so often been filled with cringing courtiers, too happy to receive a smile or word from the Pope's favorite, now to be stared at, pitied, or disdained as the Pope's prisoner. An apartment in the Belvedere of the Vatican made her place of confinement. Four months later, she was accused of having attempted the life of the Pope, by endeavoring to send him letters rendered contagious by being placed upon the breast of one who was dying of the plague. Although this accusation could not be supported, it was rendered the pretext for transferring her from the Belvedere to the dungeons of the Castle of Sant'Angelo, where it was no doubt intended that she should find a living tomb. She owed her life to the interposition and remonstrances of Louis XII, as she had been captured by one of his generals, his voice could not remain unheeded by the Pope. After only four days' incarceration, she was liberated, at the French king's request, and allowed to travel unmolested to Florence, where all her children had found a refuge. She was only thirty-nine years of age, but into those thirty-nine years what a multitude of thrilling events had been crowded. She was wearied out, crushed spirit conquered at last. She had done with life, the life of the world. Even the presence of her children could no longer render that outer world endurable. She at once retired to the convent of the Muarte, and never again passed its walls. She died in 1509, in the 47th year of her age, and was buried in the chapel of the convent, where her monument was visible until a few years ago, when the convent was converted into a state prison. Non via cosa infinita gigi. The end. End of chapter 17. End of Italian Life and Legends by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie.